The following lecture is from a course called Psychology 3717 uh, Memory. It's for the winter term of 2019. By the way, how the hell did it ever get to be 2019? Anyway, hope you like the class and uh, see you when it's done. Also, keep in mind that there's a, if you take a look, at, I know a lot of you are starting to work on your papers, take a look at the, um, on my website, there is a sample paper from a student who got an 88 on that paper. So that's a pretty good mark, because you don't, I don't give, the only time I ever give things that start with nines on papers is when they lose like a graduate student work. So that's just about the best you can do. Uh, I've given ones that started with, in fact, that same year I gave 198. I read it and said, this sounds like something the graduate student wrote, but usually it's not like that. All right, so today to talk about rare cognition, animal memory, this is um, what I find more interesting than anything else in this area. Uh, this is what my PhD was about. My major was, was comparative cognition. My minors were animal memory and human memory. So it works differently. You don't just go right and right. And then, well, just this. It doesn't work like so, comparative psychology itself, and this is the idea of comparing animals on learning ability uh, and memory, is as old as psychology, really. Um, people have wondered, probably ever since people started wondering about, wondering, <laughs> wondering about thinking, thinking about thinking, they started thinking about animal memory, and what animal is the smartest? Um, people looked at things like serial position effects, short-term, long-term memory, and rats and pigeons mostly. Rats and pigeons, because rats and pigeons are easy to get a hold of. Uh, rats you order. You literally order rats. You buy 10, you get one free. And I'm not kidding. Uh, that's usually the case, because they, and they ship them in a FedEx box. And they arrive, and you make your rats out. It's pretty cool. Uh, pigeons you get from a special place, a specialized place, usually a place that's raising them for food, actually. But they last, pigeons last 20 years. Pigeons will live to be 15 or 20 years old, right? So they're easy to work with. So people have been looking at these that are obviously human memory type questions for a long time. There's an implicit and sometimes an explicit question, not in, in implicit and explicit memory terms, more like there's an underlying sort of theoretical kind of thing here. And the question is, what did I um, can rats do what humans do? do rat, does rat memory work like human memory? That's the question that's being asked here. It isn't being asked specifically very often, but if I say, are there serial position effects in what rats remember, I'm asking you, are rats like people? Hey, hey look, they put, they put shades on the, on the windows. Oh, okay, great. Maybe I'll get a shade in my office. So, when you're asking a question like that, it's on the surface, um, and when you ask a question like that, just, you know, just me doing things for the people. So, it, on the surface, this seems like a good question. Like, it looks like a good question, doesn't it? And it almost seems sensible. Notice the dripping sarcasm. 
dripping sarcasm. Because um, it's not really a sensible question. Right? It's kind of like asking, why can't people fly by flapping their arms? The basis for a question like this is a misunderstanding of evolutionary biology, actually. So really, you got to kind of take a step back here and realize what drives this kind of question. Because if you're going to compare animals, you have to understand where the history of, 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 of the different species you're comparing. So if you think that it's a good question, you're kind of saying that humans are at the top of some evolutionary ladder. This is a point brought out a long time ago by Campbell and Hodos in 1969. They said, look, what you're saying is that there's what people used to call a scala natura, which is Latin for meaning scale of nature. You probably could guess that, probably parse that. That there's humans at the top, and all other animals are trying to kind of, that evolution is kind of driving them towards being people. And the classic scala natura actually has angels above humans and then God. That's a little thing, saints and then God. Now, people obviously didn't think that, but that's what's driving the question, isn't it? What's driving the question? It's just wrong. <laughs> it's completely and utterly wrong. But that's what's driving this sort of theoretical. Do you see that? Does that make sense? Any questions on that? Because it's when I first learned about this, to me it was made me rethink a few things. So if you if you don't have if you're not kind of well versed in this stuff, it might be a little confusing. But you're okay. I'm also pretty good, right? So I get that across pretty well. I'll literally no self help. <coughs> this is all an act. Um, anyway, that's sorry for lifting the breaking the fourth wall there. So there is no top, there is no goal. Just is. So the I, these ideas, these ideas of There being a scale, a ladder. You may have even been taught that there was the term evolutionary ladder. It's, of course, it's a tree. It's not a ladder. So these ideas like that are wrong. The better question, in fact, and this is again, you've got to realize that this is a psychology is a life science. Let's face it. So knowing some evolutionary biology is a good thing. The better question is, what has driven some species to be able to solve a certain type of problem? This is kind of like, remember the Sherry and Shackler article I had you read? Right, when would multiple memory systems evolve? It's the same kind of thing. And in fact, that article is an important article in the history of people talking about comparative psychology, even though that's not really the focus of it. So in other words, what selective pressures that changes the environment, for those of you that aren't into the evolutionary scene, um, have led to the evolution of certain cognitive mechanisms. Again, very Sherry and Schachter. Okay. So asking what, which animal is the smartest is actually, I say here a silly question, it's actually a stupid question. <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a meaningless question. You know, the fact that a cheetah can run a cube, even if it's using Usain Bolt, Is it really that interesting? 
Would we have an Olympics where we said, one country said, well, we're just going to send a cheetah? We probably wouldn't allow that because it's not fair. It's not, a, it's not a valid comparison, is it? Or, you know, boxing or rest, wrestling is better. Every country except for Italy and Canada will win wrestling. A country not good at wrestling, let's just send a couple gorillas. Everybody go, no, 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 it's okay. He falls, you win. That's, it's silly. So animals, and I'm using animal in the non-human sense here, animals can do a lot of amazing things because they have to. They've evolved to do those things. We evolved to do other cool things. The, the, the flexibility of human cognition is incredible. Okay? We don't have to fly to flap wings to fly. We invent airplanes. Like that's pretty cool, right? <coughs> so the cognitive mechanisms we have to be able to live literally anywhere on the planet, pretty special. There is something very special about humans, but we can look at different animals and say what kind of problems will they have evolved to solve. So if we're going to compare different species, we're not going to say take a rat and a pigeon and compare them, or a rat and a human. But let's say we compare two species on some task. How do we know any differences in their cognitive abilities are not due to Difference is saying in motivation. So, and those of you who took my uh, animal cognition special topics course last term know about this. The idea here is that basically you get animals to work for food. That's how are you going to test their memory? It's is their memory something to do with food. Well, what if one species doesn't like the food you're using as much as another? That kind of thing. So just think about your own life. There's a test that's worth 5% of a quiz and one that's worth 30 on the same day. Which one do you study more for? The one that's worth 30. You're more motivated. You're more driven <coughs> because it's got the, the reinforcement value is higher, right? So this was an idea that Jenny Bitterman from the 60s was really into this idea that we have to worry about these motivational questions. Uh, Bitterman then came out with sort of a, it's interesting, he comes out with an article in the United States Science, the year I was born, 1965, and he, he says, there's different kinds of learning. There's rat-like, uh, sorry, I think it's ape-like, rat-like, fish-like, one of them turtle-like, might be. I don't know about you, that sounds like ranking. That sounds like a ladder. And then Honus and Campbell, in fact, in that article I talked about, said, you're ranking them. And he's like, no, I'm not. And it's like, no, dude, <laughs> it's right here. Well, I wrote it. I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> so it's really a strange thing. But the idea of thinking about motivation is an interesting one. And it's an important one. And in fact, it was very, it held sway for a long time. A guy named Ewan McPhail, who's a Greatest Scottish, most Scottish of all Scottishest names, Ewan McPhail. This was in the mid '80s. He said that, and he says a bunch of things here. And one of them is that in science, we always start out with the null hypothesis, and you know that, and then you try to reject it, right? Nothing happens. There's no effect. And the, the, the null hypothesis if we're testing two species is 
there's no difference between the species. But if you find a difference, what's its motivation? By being able to find it. Wow. That's kind of depressing, right? So except it's also wrong. So Al Camel, there's Al, holding a Clark's nutcracker. I do a very good Al Camel impression, but it'll be lost on all of you because you've never met or will meet Al Camel. There's a bit of a uh, flaw here. That 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 was it right there. It's very good. And the flaw is this. You set up an hypothesis you can't reject. Right? You can't reject the no, can you? Because if I say, well, I find evidence, if, if I find evidence, I present it to you, you go, yeah, motivation. Oh, okay. So you're saying we should just stop. It fails basically to say we should stop doing comparative psychology. <coughs> that seems a rather radical thing. So the thing is, how do we fix this? Because this is something we have to fix, or we have to, the theoretical basis for doing any of this work would be stupid. Right? It would be ridiculous to keep doing the work. If we can never reject an all hypothesis. We've now we've, we've got to a science with just doing demonstrations. Hey, look at that. That's a thing. Give me tenure. Like that. Horrible. Except for the tenure part, that's awesome. So what Al said is we what we should do is test many species in many different paradigms. So when you think about and we do this, think about this, we do this in um in human memory stuff, right? We do it a lot. We say there's different between amnesics and normals, right? We say, here's the pattern of differences. And we test all kinds of different things. And in fact, implicit memory, they're the same. In explicit memory, they're not, for example. So in this case, instead of testing, looking at one problem with a lot of different paradigms, we're going to look at different species and many different paradigms. So if you find similar differences, similar pattern of differences in many different it's unlikely motivation was the culprit. Right? Think of it this way. If I was to compare psych students and who do we hate? Who's our, who's our big rival? Sociology, that's our, that's our big rival? <laughs> no, I heard sociology said a few times. So just <coughs> and this is completely kidding around. So sociology students scored more poorly than psychology on some task. Once we go to sociology students, maybe this isn't they had a, this, maybe they had a bad day. Maybe they all had to write the test that same day. That makes sense. And then we do it again. But we don't do the same test. We do a different test. And then
And then the next day we do another test. And then we do another thing. And we can run faster than them. We're better looking. We're taller. We can beat in basketball. So we okay, we lose the basketball, we got the on, and Elijah that's about it for basketball and Carly, that's it. That's all we got for basketball. Yeah, a lot of the guys are, are so good. So we lose the basketball. We beat them in other things. And we can't just keep coming up with excuses eventually go, you know what? Uh, this bag is better. jokes. I'm actually not kidding. So, I kid. I kid because I love. So, if we find something like that on two groups, eventually we've got to say something's going on here. This is the same idea here. We're gonna, the motivation thing plays out. So, the error cancels. This is why I don't just give you one test. And that's it. I give you two tests and a presentation and a paper because there's a lot of ways to measure. And some days you have a bad day, right? We have all had bad days writing tests. And we just go, oh, hell, that's a bad day. I screwed that one up. Probably should have drank a whole bottle of gin last night. It really affected my test performance. Usually, if it was rye, I'd be fine. Here's where my analogies about comparing this group to students or you up on one test and another kind of fall apart. We're going to look at the life history of the animal. We're going to look at the biology, basically, the neuroscience behind it and the psychology to make predictions about what kind of differences should have evolved. And we're going to do this beforehand. We're not going to say, I wonder if rats can do what people can do, because that's just a demonstration. We're going to say, I wonder if, because of some sort of evolutionary pressure, there is some difference. We would expect a certain difference. And we're going to make predictions in advance. Okay? So, question. Good so far. This makes sense, right? I hope. By the way, this was radical 30 years ago. People thought it was crazy. And now everybody thinks, why would the people think that was radical? Which is pretty great. So here's, I'm going to talk a little bit about memory in food storing birds because it's the coolest thing in the world. That's a black-capped chickadee. I think it might be a marsh tit, which are basically British chickadees. Right? Um, and they, they, they're basically something like a chickadee DD. Like they're very similar. To chickadees. And that's a question. <laughs> um, that is John Krebs. Sir John Krebs. I know a knight. He's in the House of Lords. I emailed him once because I emailed him in 20 odd years. And I thought, how do you address a guy who's a sir? And he's also a baron. So I look it up, because it's like, you know, I don't want to be dick. I mean, I, he's a friend of mine. I mean, 
obviously not very close. We hadn't talked to each other in 20 odd years, but still, I knew him. I wanted to give him some news. So I just started, I thought, hell with it. I just said, hey, John. And it worked out fine. And he just, hi, Dave. And he signed it, John, you know. But he was the principal at the time of uh, uh, one of the colleges at Oxford, uh, Jesus College. So his, it was, his, his email was principal at Jesus. Dot ox dot Acton. It was great. It's like I'm talking to Jesus and a Lord, and it's like, we're here. That's Sarah Shuttleworth, who's my PhD advisor. In fact, that's her walking down the street in Oxford. And I was telling John that she had just won like a Lifetime Achievement Award. That's my buddy Rob Hampton from grad school holding up a warthog skull. Why not? That's what he did on his on his uh, honeymoon. He went to Africa. And this is. This has all become such a big deal that notice that there's a building here at Western, the Advanced Facility for Aging and Research. That's the graduate students and the faculty. And, and that's my daughter. So it's a big deal. All right. So this is called the synthetic approach to the evolution of animal Synthesizing biology and technology. So, the stuff on food storing birds is probably the best example of, of using this, and it's the first one. Anderson and Krebs, that's that guy Krebs, in 1978, did a mathematical model trying to figure out when food storing should evolve. Because these birds store food and recover it later. That's why there's still chickadees around and other little birds aren't. Because chickadees don't fly away. They don't get a piece of stored food when they wake up in the morning when there's a half an hour they die. Right? They just start the bird weighs eleven grams. They're small they're small animals. So when should food storing evolve? And this is completely mathematical. Food storing can only evolve if you recover your own caches, your own food. And think about this, of course it would, because let's say it's a communal thing and everybody's being nice and we all recover each other's seed. You guys we're all we're all chicken. And you're all out storing your food, and we all we all recover each other's food. It's all a communal thing. And I have a mutation called lazy exploitative bastard. And what I do is I don't store any food. I, I recover my own food. Well, you're right, doing that and probably killing your children is a hell of it. But it's not good for evolution. Probably chromosome. So, uh oh, food storing disappears. The only way it's going to work is if I find my own seeds and you find your own seeds and we don't find each other's seeds. Right? Nature is not a socialist paradise. Nature is ready to comply. Nature is ugly. So how do you test that? Well, Sherry, Avery, and Stevens are one of the guys in that picture of all those people at the avian research facility at Western, which is a building, as I said, dedicated to studying bird behavior, and it is bigger than our bioscience building. Wind tunnel. They have their own wind tunnel for putting birds in. They have a bird MRI. It's so cool. So Dave Sherry and then Avery and Stevens, also Dave Keen there, um, at Oxford took some pine seeds and they labeled them with uh, they made them radioactive. Not so much that it hurt the bird, of course. Birds store the seeds, and then of course these guys can go out into the field. And light in the wood at Oxford and find the seeds and then 
only the ones that they didn't move. So that tells you a couple things. They're only recovering their own seeds, and they're, and they're only recovering, and they're probably using memory. They're not using smell, because if you smell something that's that far away, it's transcending the future find it. That's pretty neat, right? It's a very cool field experiment. So they are recovering their own seeds, and they're almost certainly using memory. Right? So what Sarah Shuttleworth and John Krebs did when Sarah was on sabbatical at Oxford is she had birds fly, uh, use a bird ship, fly into an aviary, and in a lab, so it's an aviary in a lab, so it's a room, it's about a quarter of the size of this actually, with fake trees in it. And by fake trees, I mean four <laughs> by four by fours with holes drilled in them. That's all they are. And the birds are allowed to store these seeds in these holes, and then you bring them back into their home cages, and you then go in, they've, they've stored four seeds, and then you put four more seeds in. And you see which seeds they find, and they find their own seeds, they don't find the other ones. So they're not used, using smell or anything like that, or scent markers. People always think animals are really good at, birds can't smell most of the time. Like diurnal birds, they can't smell, cayenne pepper doesn't bother them, they could go in that hot wing show, but it would be weird because they're also, you know, birds. And again, they eat mammals. I guess that's probably normal. Getting a little weird here, sorry. Um, <laughs> it's got a little dark there. So they recover their own seeds. They would keep half, or the other thing, they take half the seeds out and look where they're, where they're, where they're visiting, and they visit locations where there's no seeds because Sarah took them out. They're obviously trying to find their own seeds that they stored. Okay? So in a lot of gen sort of general memory tests, and I'll talk in a second about the kind of tests you can run, um, there are clear differences between stores and non-stores in the corvid family. That's crows and nutcrackers, jays. Um, and I've talked about hippocampal differences in many classes. I don't think I actually talked about it here, but you've probably heard me talk enough about how hippocampus is bigger in storing birds than non-storing birds. Right? Even when you correct the brain cells. But what about parrots? That's the chickadees and titmice, right? So that's chickadees, marsh tits, etc. They store seeds and they recover them. Everything's lining up perfectly, exactly like you'd expect. But the only problem was the data are at best equivocal. So half the time, the chickadees are better. Uh, in fact, the, be the best comparison is probably comparing uh, marsh tits, which are, of course, stores, and great tits, which are not stores. But they're closely related. And no difference. Although sometimes there is, and sometimes there isn't. So, but there really should be a difference because they rely on the memory for space for where things are to live. If they don't recover the seeds, they die. So what's going on? Well, maybe it's not how much they remember. 
Maybe it's the kind of strategies they've evolved. It's how they remember. So maybe it's looking at a qualitative difference rather than a quantitative difference. So maybe they're just remembering things differently. than the food stores remember things differently than the non-stores. Make sense? So when I started grad school, well, in 1988, I remember talking to Sarah. She said, what do you want to do for your, for your master's and for your PhD? And what do I want to do for your master's, she said. And I said, I'd like to know how they're remembering things. And she said, that's a very big question and not suitable for your master's. It's too big. She said, put that in your pocket for your PhD. I said, okay. And there we are in 1993. That's my going away party. Just after I finished, and I'm wearing a Montreal Stanley Cup winning shirt because I've managed to win the Stanley Cup. And I probably drunk. Um, it's a party in her backyard. I'm probably drinking. So what I was interested in doing and have been for a very long time is I'm interested in looking at what they remember, not how much they remember. What are they attending to? So some of this work, uh, there's a couple references there, and I'll talk a little bit about these. I'll talk about the 94 paper. Um, Saying, wait, you said you finished in 93. It takes time for journals to publish things. It also takes time because Dave Broadbent's a shitty writer. And there's constantly things like, you really have to rewrite this whole section. Final product is good. The getting there is really bad. <coughs> I'm not very good at that. So here's what I did. This is a long time ago. Um, so this is a chickadees, what they would do is they'd fly into a room and there would be four feeders on the wall. And one of them has a seed, in fact, a peanut in it. These feeders are pieces of two by four. They're about this big. Okay. And they have a dowel stuck in them for, as a perch and a hole drilled in them. And then you see that dark circle? It's actually Velcro. So what the bird does is there's no Velcro when it flies in, but it flies into the room and it looks in all the feeders, and they all look different. I had to think, I had 104 of them, they were all painted differently. With all kinds of just different things. Uh, Isabel and I painted them, my wife and I painted them, she was my girlfriend then, but she painted them, uh, and clearly even then she had artistic talent that I did not have. I just did things like I you know, point an arrow to where the, you know, I'd write like Dave, right? I wrote the name of my favorite band, so it's like U2, and then it was a Canadian's Crest. I haven't changed much. Um, and they'd fly in, find the seeds, so let's say it's right here. They were allowed to eat for 30 seconds. And then I would turn the lights off in the aviary. And turn the light on their home cage, there's like a trap door, and they fly back in because they go towards the light. That's what you do too, right? Usually, if not, you actually had to go into the, the room trap them with a, with a butterfly net. Not easy. Lights are off and you're with a flashlight and you have to walk like this because what if they're on the floor? And one day, one guy out and it got out of the aviary and it's flying down the hall. 
result of going through that aggression as well. And this was a whole day before we got this whole new lab, this our old lab, and the window um, screens on windows, and people like the student newspaper across the hall actually had their windows open. And I'm running with a net, wearing motorcycle boots, because before it was 1988, or 89 probably by then, and I'm yelling, close your fucking windows! <laughs> It's funny, I, I told, uh, and I, th that day I missed a colloquium, department colloquium, and you're supposed to go to those when you're a first year graduate student. And, and if you don't go, you get in trouble. So the chair of the department wants to meet with me. And he says, Why weren't you at the colloquium? I said, I was chasing a bird down a hall with a net. He said, You couldn't have made that up. That's fine, too. Because <laughs> I chased it for like 20 minutes. And it's like, oh, Well, I gotta run the rest of my experiment. Eventually, we got our own space. It was they return later to eat it, and then you cover them all with, uh, during the retention interval, right? Same, same terms. During the retention interval, cover up all the little holes with Velcro, and then the bird flies back here and it attacks the seat. They rip the Velcro off, and eat the, the, the seat. So they can't see the, the seat, right? So what I did is I would then move, this was on eventually up test days, I would move the whole array of feeders over and swap a couple uh, of them. So I can associate the little feed. So, for example, as you can see on the uh, picture here, this is the correct position in the array of feeders. It's the second uh, one from the left. This is the correct spatial location, because it's the actual location in space. And this one's the correct color, and this is just an extra. And then see where they go first, second, and third. As you can see here, they go to the location first, the array position second, and the color third. So they're remembering the color, but it's 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 the third most important thing. Questions on that? Does it make sense how that worked? Yeah, the array, the position um, where it is in the array of feeders. So is it say second from the left, or is it the bottom one, or is it the one on the right? That kind of thing. So no, it's okay. Keep asking. I want to. Yeah. Position, location, and array. Okay, the location is the actual. See how it's shifted over? This is actually the closest place in, in actual space oh, okay. where it is. Yeah. So the array is relative to the other. Exactly. There's relative position and, and, and absolute position. I should have called it relative position and absolute position. That's a way better way to put it. Yeah. Well, nothing I can do about it now. <laughs> Let's see what happens. Ricky, stuff we're doing now. We'll, we'll give you mental credit for things. Um, <laughs> So not, the thing is, this is cool. Let's try it with non-story birds and dark-eyed juncos, which uh, you've seen before. They flew in, same path, and they would remember the spatial position, the array position, and the color equally. It's pretty neat. Questions about it? So you would expect that an animal who is remembering, whose life depends on remembering where it put food, would remember absolute spatial position, right, better than anything. Because what are they doing this food story now? This is how they live. And if they don't find something, they die. And, you know, trees get blown over. And colors change. Or they're all the same. It's, oh, look, it's a different shade of white. 
So that's the kind of difference you'd expect. So I did the same thing on a much smaller scale on a computer touchscreen. Sarah got this big grant just for me to open this one. Ooh, look. I think this is an important And a 17 inch, 17 inch flat screen monitor, which is something that really didn't exist. Well, they existed, but they were, and I kid you not, that deep. Flat screen CRT. Now you just buy a monitor that's a touch screen. <laughs> it's no big deal. But back then, back then you had to write your own drivers to run the touch screen. When I say you, I mean me. Oh, good, I have to be a computer scientist all of a sudden. That's when you realize, I'm not really as smart as I think I am, am I? <laughs> Six months later, <laughs> got it to work. I was so obsessed with it, I one night fell asleep, and I looked over, apparently talking in my sleep, and I looked over at my wife and started talking about like procedures and function calls. So in this case, the birds are rewarded for going to a place on a screen and pecking at it. And then I would switch the patches around. So it's basically the same task. And I found that they would remember color, oh, sorry, space. And the juncos didn't rely on space. They relied on space or color. So it's, they didn't care. Another experiment was actually determined that chickadees, when directly tested on color and nothing else, they're not very good at it. You can make them good at it. You can force them. You can do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of trials, and eventually they get okay at it. But they're basically always trying to solve problems using spatial memory rather than any other kind of memory. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Their lives depend on spatial memory. Okay. So functionally, this makes a lot of sense. In other words, evolutionary. <coughs> As I said, birds remember where something is not what color it is. They remember that, they just don't care about it. Because it's not important. It's kind of like how humans, right? We eventually learn to learn with a story, we learn the gist. We don't care about the actual words in order unless they're accurate. Right? It's the same kind of thing. It makes sense for us to make guesses based on the story. Birds are making guesses based on these storm variables, based on the space, spatial location. Colors, as I said, colors change, but that line of trees over there is going to still be there tomorrow. Actually, the really weird result in this task is the juncos. Um, the juncos actually, for some reason, in this task, in the aviator, and in that thing that in the, uh, the, the, the experiment in the, in the touch screen, they still should be remembering color better than anything else. Or sorry, uh, spatial location better than anything else. So, I mean, for example, some stuff that I did, whoops, oh, in fact, you got automatically, don't do that. Um, we're gonna, that's gonna come up, isn't it? Okay. Anyway, some stuff that me and Mike Waber and Stephanie Vaughn, um, sorry, Stephanie Grant, Steve Vaughn did, we actually had birds, uh, these pigeons, and I can draw this up here. So what happened here in this case was a pigeon was presented with a 
to the green, red, and blue. So they had three keys they could peck at, and they'd be rewarded for one of them. So they present with these three keys, and they peck at the blue one, they get food, then they, they go off, and then eventually we switch them around. So we put green here, and blue here, and red here. And they respond based on the spatial location. They would go to the left and the right. So that's kind of weird that they did this. And in fact, when you look at the rest of the literature, most of the time animals actually re respond based on space more than anything. There's something weird and special about this task that I developed. So it's, and it's probably because it's in a room, so a big scale, uh, and it's got some similarities to food storing and things like that. Because it's not just me telling this, other people have, have, have found the same kind of results. Right? So it's kind of strange. It's a strange thing. Questions about that? So you see how it's very straightforward test of memory for that to work that we did, and now it's going to automatically do that, and it's going to stop doing it. Now, this is something, I took this, and I said, okay, why don't we do a field experiment on this? There's quite a lot of those back in that group land. Um, and Jessica Humber, and that's her up there, did, uh, got, a, got a summer answer to, to work with me, and she was testing pine siskins, and that's these birds here, that's her backyard in June. Now if there's no leaves in the trees, because it's freaking Newfoundland, and summer comes for a week in July, as this does. So why were we interested in pine siskins? Well, pine siskins are kind of a finch, so we're using the same approach here. We're saying, what's interesting about these animals is they don't always migrate. What? Sometimes they just do these <coughs> migratory invasions, and they go to like, Carolina, Mexico, wherever. But sometimes they hang around. They're not food stores. They're opportunistic feeders. But the fact that they move, they leave, the, the, the notion is why would they just suddenly leave? Well, maybe it's because there is a fluctuating food supply. The food supply gets low. It's like, we should get out of here. But usually it's not so bad. So they should be very sensitive to where food is. So while they're not food stores, they should still be sensitive to where food is. Okay? So we have three feeders set up here in Jessica's backyard. And there was food, sunflower seeds put in them uh, in the ratio of three to two to one. And we wanted to see if the birds could learn to visit happen, they'd probably visit this feeder rather than this one, and then this one the least. And as you can see, that's what happened. These are blocks of five days. And unlike the stuff that we're doing right now, where the weather's so bad that we've discovered basically birds hate really cold yeah. weather, that's basically what happened there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're, so, we're much more similar than we like to think. Um, so it's hard to get any data yet. Uh, it's too bad. Anyway, eventually you'll get something that looks like this. So they're going, the green one on the left had the most food, the red one, the, the second most, and the yellow one, which are the, the least. Okay. So what they can do is they distribute their ratio of visits, three to two to one. Thing is, though, 
It could be just moving the birds where they can actually see how much food is in the feeder, so we covered them up. They eventually get covered up with uh, brown paper on the inside. And then we start swapping feeders around, just like my whole career is either spinning rectangles or swapping colored feeders. That's all I do. Somehow that's my job. So instead of like green, red, yellow, we'd have now red, green, yellow, or something like that. And the question is, where do they visit? Okay. And here's what happens. So this is red, green, yellow. That's normal. Now we're going to swap them around. So the way you read this graph is these are just proportions of visits that the birds are making. And you can see, in fact, that that's the regular sort of training. And then we swap around here red and green. They still go to the leftmost one first. We swap around. Uh, this is what, green and yellow. Sorry, yellow and red. No problem. No problem here. It gets weird when we swap the thing around completely. The pattern disappears when it goes red, when, when we actually just flip the, the other two most ones. Which is strange because the birds, well, this is, these are in the wild. Left and right say start here to the birds. So it's almost as if, if things are flipped around completely, it's like, no, the world's different now. I don't know what's going on. It's a strange result. So what does this mean? As I say, it's a good question. Um, the Siskins respond based on space, sort of. If the most profitable feeder is not in the exact opposite feature it should be in, they respond to it first, spatially. But it's a brand new array if, if everything's if, if it's completely in the opposite space it should be in. This was a talk I actually gave at a conference, the Conference of Comparative Cognition. And I always would thank my students. So that was one of my lab assistants, Craig, who now is a teacher. Uh, that was my old student, Eric, who worked in my lab. Eric is now a faculty member in psychology studying animal cognition at the Queen University of Edmonton. There's my kids at the bottom a long time ago. And that's what, you think we get snow here? That's, that's Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. That's my house. That's snow. When it snowed the other day like that, I said, So when we think about the memory kind of questions that we have in animals, we, we think about different systems. We, you know, in, in humans, we talk about episodic, semantic, long-term, short-term, we're super player. We do that in, in, with animals. Yeah, we kind of do. We talk about working and reference memory. Working memory are, is the memory needed to solve one trial of a task. And reference memory are the rules of the game. So for example, let's think of a very simple task. A pigeon is presented with a red colored disc to peck, and it's a lighted <coughs> disc. Nowadays, it's, it's on a computer touchscreen. It used to be an actual mechanical device. It pecks at this, let's say, five times. 
this goes out, it flashes off. We get a retention interval of five seconds, let's say. And then they get a choice between red and green. This task is called delayed matching through samples. It's called that because it's delayed and they have to match kind of a sample. It's a pretty simple, straightforward term. So this is the sample. And then you show them these two. If they detect the red, they get food. If they detect the green, they get no food. And half the time, this is red. And half the time, it's green. And half the time, this is on the left. And half the time, it's on the right. If psychologists are anything, it's obsessed about methodology. Right. Do you understand this idea of delayed matching for samples? Pretty straightforward, I think. Now, here's the question. To solve one trial, so one instance like this, what is the working memory component of this task? What do you have to do to solve one trial of delayed matching samples? <coughs> solve this trial, what do you have to, to do? Hmm? Yeah, you have to either peck red, or I guess you could remember not green. Basically, the thing or your, your working memory portion of this is what color was the sample? Or what color might have been cast? Right? Would the original red disk make up its retention? No, uh, no, 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 no. You can do it that way, it doesn't really help. So it's very easy, easy to do it and make it, then they get fat. Okay. No, because basically you want them hungry, right? So you keep them at like 85, 90% of their regular food feeding weight, so they, they work harder, they work their food better. So they get a lot of their food in the box. Um, and then, so if you, if you were doing that, you'd get half as many trials each time. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, okay, that's the working memory part. What's the reference memory? How do you, this is in other words, what are the rules of this task? What do you have to know to actually do this? No, the red doesn't always mean food. Because sometimes it's green. Match sample. That's one way you can do it. There's another way you can do it. Maybe the other way. This is, this is a very subtle question. And no one thought of this until recently enough. If red, peck red. If green, peck green. So you could be remembering. It could be two things, or it could be one thing. Match to sample is a harder thing to remember, or sorry, is, is, is a more general rule than if red, <coughs> peck red, if green, peck green. How could we test which way they were doing that? Could we test if they were doing if red, peck red, if green, peck green, or if their reference memory rule they learned is matched to sample? So again, this is getting at what they're remembering, not how much they're remembering. I'm going to explain this now, and you're going to go, of course. Train them up on this, and now do two new colors. Blue sample, blue and yellow. Yellow sample, blue and yellow. If they're just fine on that, there's no problem, they've learned match the sample. If they've learned if red, peck red, if green, peck green, and they see blue and yellow, they're like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So is it still a learning curve again? Yes. 
Exactly. There'd be decrements in there. They'd go back down to 50%, come back up to, they get close to 100%, And what happens is that's what pi pigeons learn if red detect red and green detect green. Pigeons are stupid. <laughs> Isn't that just like conditioning though? Like yeah, well, of course it's conditioning. It's learning. What's well, memory? It's the persistence of learning. Yeah. But the thing is, if it's just conditioning, as you said, they couldn't. Each trial is different. You could also do this with what are called trial unique stimuli. What if we use pictures and they were different every single time? You can do that. So they have to learn, they have to learn the rule match the sample. And that's when you go, oh, pigeons maybe aren't stupid, because if you test them on that, they eventually learn it, and they're great at it, and then you can test them years later, literally, a couple of years later. Have you seen this picture before? Heck, you know, they learned, heck, if you've seen this before, and one's from a couple of years ago, they remember. So it's sort of the demands of the task. And a, a completely correct way to answer this question is, if red, tech red, if green, tech green. So delayed matching the sample I just talked about, you can do delayed non-matching to sample, which is if red, tech green, if green, tech red. Now the thing I talked about about switching to the yellow and blue, that's what was done here by McIntosh, Wilson, and Bokes in 1982. And they found that pigeons <coughs> didn't do that, but jackdaws, Jackdaws, by the way, are kind of weird because they're so good at mimicking other sounds. When I was at Oxford, go into the room where the jackdaws were, and you'd hear, you'd hear keys, and it wasn't keys, it was the jackdaws making that sound because the guy who was there, like the lab assistant who fed the jackdaws, he always had his keys with him, and he fumbled with them, he had all kinds of keys because, of course, he was opening all kinds of buildings and rooms. So that's the noise they'd make. And it was creepy because it just sounds just like And birds, like, they don't have lips. So you just see, like, this thing open, and that comes out of its mouth, and you go, that's really, really <laughs> weird. Right? It's not like you watch a dog bark, you go, you know? Not with a bird, it goes, and the thing comes out of it. <laughs> you know? Freaking dinosaurs, it's a little scary. So these are both subject to, by the way, I talked at the beginning, should we care about stuff that happens in people? Well, sometimes we're going to get the same kind of phenomenon. So for example, we're going to get proactive and retroactive interference in something as general as matching the sample. Just like you get those kind of patterns of results that should surprise us that people and pigeons and everything else are the same on tasks like this. How do you test proactive and retroactive interference? Well, this is when you have to use different colors. So they've learned, do we have a marker here, Brad? Take too much to write down a marker. Okay. <coughs> oh well, Paul took all the markers. It's typical. Selfish bastard. So, how do you test this? Well. Let's say you have six colors to work with, okay? And so it could be red, green, blue, yellow, whatever. You give them a red sample, and then they do red versus green. And then on the next one, they've got a yellow sample, 
and you give them red versus yellow. If they're picking, if they're picking red, so yellow sample, red versus yellow, okay? then there's interference from the previous trial. And that's how you test that. And in fact, when you do use unique stimuli, they can do much longer retention intervals. Like I said, literally hours, days. But they typically use only a couple of kinds of samples. It doesn't work that way. Because <coughs> there's so much interference built up. So one of the things you can do is called symbolic matching to sample. So you're not really matching to sample, so to speak, because it's like if it's a green sample, pick the horizontal line. If it's a red sample, pick the vertical line. So the bird has to learn a relationship between so red means whatever I said, horizontal, and green means vertical. Because you might want to ask yourself, are they remembering? Like, think about matching sample. It seems so simple, yet when they're doing the working memory component, are they remembering back to what color the sample was? Or are they remembering what they're supposed to detect when it comes back up? Those are two separate questions. So if they're encoding what's called retrospectively, they have to think back to what the color of the sample was. If they're encoding prospectively, they have to remember and rehearse what color key they're supposed to pick. How the hell are you going to get at that? Well, with symbolic matching. This is so cool, this experiment. Herb Roycelak did this, 1980. So he did symbolic matching. So it worked like this. If the sample was red, the correct response was a horizontal line. If the sample was orange, the correct response is a vertical line. If the sample is blue, it was an almost vertical line. And that's the correct response. If they make the, the following mistakes, look at this. We're analyzing patterns of error. Talked about this. This was on day one. We talked about how do we study memory. That was in humans. What we're going to do is for non-humans. They make mistakes when the choices are one and two. So let's say they give it a red sample, and then their choices are horizontal line or vertical line. They must be encoding retrospectively, because red and orange are almost the same. They're easy to confuse. Okay? So when they're thinking back, they confuse themselves. God, this is clever. If they do it with choices <coughs> two and three, in other words, they get a vertical line and an almost vertical line. But the samples, the things, if it, they would have to be encoding prospectively. What am I supposed to pick? Because it's easy to confuse a vertical line and an almost vertical line. It's pretty hard to confuse orange and blue. So I'll show you this sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, schematically, probably helps. Red orange, blue. Those are the possible samples. So they could get red. They peck at that five times. I think it's five. It might be 20. I, I can't exactly remember what it is. And then you give them a choice. Horizontal, 
If they make a lot of mistakes, they must be looking back because and confusing orange and red. If they make a lot of mistakes when the choices are these two, and they've got to say a blue sample, then they're given a vertical and almost vertical line, they must be encoding prospectively because the mistakes they're making are confusing vertical and almost vertical. Does that make sense? This is a really subtle and quite cool experiment, but I want you to understand it. Good? So you might wonder, what do they do? Well, what they do, in fact, is the shorter the retention interval, the more likely they are to recode retrospectively. When it gets the longer retention interval, this changes bridge to bridge, they switch over to prospective code. So it stops being what should I, what, what did I see to what should I do. So they're active in their own learning, which is cool. People never thought that a pigeon would do that. Then he got a job at the University of Florida. And every year we have this conference in Florida, and everybody's like, oh, it's great to be in Florida. And he's like, I live in Hawaii. And he's like, go to hell. Just shut up. We hate you. Nobody hates him, let's be fair. I'm sure somebody hates him, but you know, <laughs> generally in the community, he's thought out pretty highly. Other cool things. What about the eight arm radial maze invented by <laughs> Oltman Samuels in 1986? The eight-arm radial maze is a maze with a central platform. And Boy, you're right here. It's a, a central platform. And we'll use that. Like that. Okay. And then eight arms that radiate out like the spokes of a wheel. So the poor drawing, but it gives you the idea. The rat starts in the middle, and there's food at the end of the arms, and you see where the rat goes, one of the interesting things about this is that, I don't know how about you, but the way I would solve this is I would start at one place and just keep going clockwise or counterclockwise. Rats don't do that. They go in all kinds of different directions, but they, of their first eight choices, seven are correct. They remember where they were. And if you lose your hippocampus, uh, they, can, they have real trouble with this. And one of the things you can do is you can say, okay, well, we're, we're going to bait just those four arms. Those are the green dots all the time. And then so they, their task then is only go down the ones that are the baited arms. And if you lesion hippocampus, they, can, they keep going down those arms, but they can't remember how they've gone down them. So the working memory part is damaged <coughs> in hippocampus, but the reference memory part isn't. Makuta and Roberts, 1997, found out that rats actually do chunk. So again, this is something I talked at the beginning about how we shouldn't look at what humans do, but there are certain things that these strategies should probably work in all kinds of animals. And in this case, the, the rats are given it's a 12-arm radial maze, and uh, four of the arms are, sorry, three of the arms are food pellets, little 45-milligram food pellets. Three of the arms are chocolate chips, and three of the arms are little pieces of cheese. 
And rats like cheese better than they like chocolate. Sorry, like chocolate better than they like cheese. And then finally, the food pellets are okay. And then there's three empty arms, they just don't want to go down. So how do we know they chunk them? Well, what you do is after they've learned what three arms are chocolate, what three arms are cheese, what three arms are pellets, is you just switch them around. So you take all the cheese ones and put them in the chocolate one. What happens? Rat goes down where it thinks it's a chocolate arm. Turns out it's a cheese arm. And then what they do is they switch over to what used to be the cheese arm because they had all the chocolate. They've actually remembered, oh, chocolate's here, cheese is here. It's almost like they're saying to themselves, and they weren't saying these things themselves, but it's almost like they're thinking like this. Oh, I must be misremembering that. Oh, those are the chocolate arms. And they also learn more quickly when you keep them constant. If you keep just changing where all the food arms are, they, they learn it, but they don't, do it, they don't do it nearly as quickly as if they can use a strategy of those are the chocolate, those are the cheese, those are the pellet arms. Pretty damn cool. That's Todd's master's, I think. 27. Yeah, that's his master's. When I'm not recording, I can tell you the story about Todd. Anyway. They can actually, they actually do directed forgetting. Peter Trolley's done some great stuff where, you know, like for humans, you can do direct forgetting. I give you a list of words, and after some of the words, I say forget. And after some of the words, I say remember. And you do better on the words that I've told you to remember. I can test that sometimes. I give you, well, I, I can just give you a list of words and then see which ones you remember. And you remember the ones I told you to remember. With, with pigeons, what you do is you show them a pick, uh, you do the matching the sample, and if it's a triangle, we're not going to. Don't, don't worry about it. And then there's no test. <coughs> and if there's a circle, there's a test. And then we lie to them and sometimes we make them think there's a triangle, no test, and we go, huh, KKLOL. Okay. And they actually end up, don't, they don't do as well in those trials. So they learn to forget things when you tell them to. Just like people. This is the one that kills me. Okay. Let's just expand that a bit. What if when you're given a red, so it's, let's go red versus green matching to sample, just the classic. And they can choose either to get a test or not. So you get red, and then you get a choice, which is if you tell the triangle, you're going to get a test. Square, you can test a square, you're not going to get a test. You're going to get some food, but not as much as if you got a test and got it right. Okay? So to schematically put this one up here, should get rid of that argument on maze anyway. Oh, wait a second, can I do that? Yeah, that doesn't help. Okay. You get red, and then Triangle will give you green and red, but square, let's say, just gives you some food. Okay? So you get some food here, let's say two, I think it's <coughs> two seconds of access to the feeder hopper being open. But if you get this right, you get 10 seconds of access. But if you get it wrong, you get nothing. So there's this, there's the purple square, what I've drawn this here, is what's called the safe food. It's like 
Yeah, I don't know. Now, what we're asking, what we, what Alistair Inman and Sarah Shuttleworth were asking the, the pigeons is, the, is this. Do you know what you know? It's, called, it's metacognition. Do you actually know what you remember? Or what's the contents of your own memory? How would we test that? Well, sometimes when they pick the safe key, we give them a test. And it turns out, in fact, that yes, they aren't very good when they're given the safe key. In other words, they don't know. They're, they're basically looking at the contents of their own memory and thinking, I don't know which key I'm supposed to pack. I can't remember. I'll just take the safe key. Now, the longer you make the retention interval, the more likely they are to pick the safe key. In other words, the longer the retention interval, as we know, the poorer the memory is going to be. So of course, they're going to flip over and pick the safe key. That's a really neat experiment. And I remember when Alistair talked about this, it was a long time ago. Um, before It was, wasn't published until 99, but he presented it. I was still in the lab, so I was like 90, probably 93. He was a postdoc with Sarah. And he presented this idea, and it had it was all sort of a behavioral ecology angle to it. So I'm not going to go into the long and talk about it later. But we all looked at it and said, Jim, you're doing metacognition with pigeons. And he said, I don't even know what that means because it's a zoology. And it's a very cool experience. talked about how I've done priming with pigeons, right? And picture presentation. So again, you might say, Dave, again, so again, you ranted about this, you talked about how you like this stuff where you look at the animal's biology, and then you're doing picture fragment completion. That sounds like can rat the pigeons do what people do. Being able to complete a perceptually degraded stimulus should be something pigeons are good at. Because when they are foraging, they're looking at seeds in the real world, or pieces of food on the ground that can sometimes be cryptic. They're hard to see. They should be doing something like this. And in fact, they should, you should get, other animals should be good at this, let's say if they are preyed upon ever, or if they're predators. You should always be able to tell, like if something's occluded, if there's something missing, if it's in front of it, any animal that looked at something that was blocked by something else and said, well, that can't be a bear. There's a thing in front of it. That's a bear tree. Those are gone. Yeah, those animals died. They didn't pass the gene test. You should be able to complete those perception-degraded stimulus, and very quickly. So it's not surprising that I found something akin to priming in non-humans. all these kinds of experiments based on when it becomes interesting, I guess, is when it's based on why should the animal be able to solve this problem? And then you make predictions in advance rather than gee, big people do it. Okay. And it's been a lot more fruitful in the last so many years. But like I said, when, 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 when Al Camel first came out with that idea, the rebels were the people who came up, who, who thought of that idea. 
who like thought highly of it. The, the sort of traditional approach went out of favor in the mid 90s, but and it switched very quickly. But at first, it was no, don't do uh, that's that's crazy. You get away with your crazy evolutionary biology. We're psychologists. Right, so things have really changed over there. So that's just a sort of, you know, very broad introduction to the area. There is, if you look at, on the uh, website, there's a, a linked article there. Uh, not article. Yes, there's an article there. But there's also a link uh, to a podcast episode, uh, an interview with Ed Wasserman. So listen to that. There's also an interview, I believe, with Al Camel. Um, I didn't do that one. The Ed Wasserman one I did. My podcast uh, because, of course, I have a podcast about animal cognition. Question? All right. So, remember, on... Thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures from Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. 
Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe Music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, if call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>